We have been victimized by excessive secrecy, not only with respect to the failure of the Congress in the past to exercise proper surveillance over intelligence activities, uh, but also uh, excessive secrecy has created this kind of mischief within the executive branch. Here we have a case where the very methods of secrecy uh, concealed for five years an act of insubordination within the CIA uh, that came to light only by the happenstance that Mr. Colby, the present director, asked the agency if they please wouldn't tell him what's been going on that's wrong. And as a result, somebody, knowing something about this, gave him a tip as a result of which he then conducted an investigation that led to these disclosures. So I believe that the internal uh, workings uh, within the agency itself are uh, a matter that we must look at very closely to be sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Welcome to episode 33 of American History 2 and the very first one of 2017. I am Mark McClay and as always, I'm joined by Malcolm Craig. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Mark. Yes, 2017, new year, new presidency in the United States, which is uh, going to be an exciting few years. Uh, I, I, I will refrain from comment at this point. Yes, let's. So we're delighted, moving on to the subject of our podcast today, away from contemporary issues, delighted to welcome as our guest today, Daffith Townley, who's studying for his PhD at the University of Reading. And we've wanted to get Daffith on for quite a while because he's looking at an incredibly interesting and under-researched topic in the form of the 1975 Year of Intelligence and specifically the Church Committee investigations into the American intelligence community. So welcome, Daffith. And can you just tell us a little bit more about what your research focuses on? Um, yes, by all means. Um, well, my PhD is uh, tentatively entitled Spies, Civil Liberties and the Sabbath, uh, the 1975 Church Committee, and focuses primarily on the influence of public opinion on both the Ford administration and the congressional investigations into the CIA and the various other intelligence uh, communities, agencies. And uh, yeah, it's uh, really, as you said, quite a an under-researched area. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to hearing more about it today. So, I mean, I guess for the, for the listener, um, this is kind of, but not exactly, a, a sequel to our, our November podcast where we looked at the birth of sort of the CIA's covert operations program uh, during the 1940s. And we took that right up to the late 1940s before we left off. So basically what we're going to do before we move on to 1975, the year of intelligence in the church committee, is we're going to catch up with the CIA, see how they've been doing across the 1950s and the 1960s. So Malcolm, I'm going to turn first to you. I mean, how would you characterize the CIA during the 50s and 60s? You know, what's its sort of purpose, its mission, you know, and, and was it broadly successful? Well, I mean, as, as America's kind of premier foreign intelligence and counterintelligence agency, it achieves a measure of both, I mean, success and failure in the, the 1950s and 60s. And some of that is to do with institutional factors, external factors, a changing global context, 
technological change, all that kind of thing. Uh, when we left it the last time, we were just on kind of the eve of the Korean War. And it's in this period that the CIA starts to really ramp up covert operations, uh, particularly in the so-called third world or, or developing world. And it achieves particular success in bringing down uh, Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in 1953, and building on that success, it also brings down uh, the government uh, of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1953-54. And what this says to the CIA and to the, the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s is that covert operations can work to bring in regimes that are more favourable within a Cold War context to American policy and American attitudes and lean more towards America. Now, there's also a story of failure in intervention here. Uh, there's a major kind of covert operation in Indonesia uh, carried out by the Eisenhower administration in the mid to late 1950s, and that is a, a notable and very public failure. And we also have the CIE's remit as an intelligence gathering organisation, and we see kind of a change here in how the CIA conducts intelligence operations. And this is very general, but the, the Eastern European intelligence organizations such as the Soviet KGB and GRU, the East German uh, HVA, are much, much better at the human intelligence angle. So spies, informers, all that kind of thing. Uh, it's very difficult for the CIA to penetrate uh, the Eastern Bloc with spies because they get found out so easily. Uh, now, there's various reasons for this. So it starts to concentrate more on technological solutions to the intelligence gathering problem. So we see the CIA being involved in the development of early spy satellites, uh, which later transits over to the National Reconnaissance Office, and also spy planes, famously the, the U-2, uh, which lasts a long time and models of it are still being used today, and the Oxcart program, which eventually transforms into the, the later famous Blackbird high-speed reconnaissance plane. So this is kind of having an effect on the CIA, and we're starting to see also a change in the, the human structure of the CIA, where it had previously been made up of Ivy League, a lot of Ivy League graduates in senior positions coming from the humanities, all that kind of thing. We're starting to see a change over to a more technocratic, because of the technological changes, a more technocratic structure uh, within the CIA. And Daffith? Yeah, it's um, it's it's what's called um, by Locke Johnson, uh, who's one of the, the leading scholars on intelligence community, is the era of trust. Um, it's it's really done everything that is done with the blessing of Congress. There is very little oversight. The, you know, uh, we have uh, it's a time of what is termed as honourable men. There's supposedly four committees in Congress that do. Um, conduct oversight, which is both, uh, supposed to be the Armed Forces and Appropriations Committees in both the House and the Senate. But neither are really interested, partly because they're, they're afraid of, 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 um, of questioning this anti-communist stance of, of the state. And uh, Representative Michael Harrington most famously says that, you know, when this is all revealed, all the, mystic, um, the, the the dirty tricks were revealed as part of the church committee, that, that Congress's stance was that it didn't know and it didn't want to know. And, and I think this, it, you know, it's, it's really is just an era where CIA are allowed to get away with pretty much what they want up until 1961. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's really interesting. The sort of Congress doesn't know, nor does it want to know. I mean, it sort of chimes in with a topic we'll discuss later in terms of the Vietnam War, where they sort of shed any responsibility with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution for the actual fighting of the war. 
So it seems to be a theme that runs through Congress at this point. Um, I mean, out of interest, are there any figures, you know, who emerge in the CIA in this era that sort of embody the institution in the same way as, you know, the J. Edgar Hoover um, sort of ruled with an iron fist across the FBI and basically almost, I'm sure if he was here, would say he was the FBI when he was in charge? Uh, I'm not, there's, there's no one of the same fame and stature that Hoover has in American political and public life. I mean, he's 48 years he's director of the FBI for, or previously the Bureau of Investigation and all that kind of thing. There's no one with that level of public fame and stature, as far as I'm aware. I mean, within the agency and within the intelligence community, you get figures like James Jesus Angleton, who's the absolutely legendary head of CIA counterintelligence, and there are figures like uh, Dick Helms, uh, William Colby, but there's much less institutional stability in terms of the leadership at the very top when compared with the FBI. Yeah, there's there's no um, there's no real figure like Hoover because of his length of service. But I mean, just to go on to Colby, Colby's a hugely divisive figure amongst the CIA community. He's seen by some as being a, a necessary reformist; by others, he's he's perceived as being a, a traitor who gave away the the agency secrets during the church committee hearings and during the year of intelligence. He's the first um, central intelligence agency director to give a press conference. Um, Nobody else before. And of course, Angleton, who's in charge of uh, counterintelligence is Mr. Anti-Communism. And he, he leaves the agency just as the year of intelligence begins as part of this power struggle between Colby and himself, because Angleton wants to continue the same way, whereas Colby perceives the necessity for reform within the agency, especially the compartmentalisation side of it. But he doesn't really get his own way, as we'll find out. Okay. And and in my layman's knowledge, the the sort of the CIA's most high profile contribution during the fifties and sixties is 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 a complete disaster essentially, and and of course here I'm I'm talking about the the Bay of Pigs, um, the failed attempt to sort of or one of the many failed attempts to to assassinate Fidel Castro, the leader in Cuba, and um and, and which which ended in a lot of the the people landing on the Bay of Pigs being captured, having failed to lead an uprising against Castro. Um, turning to you, David. Um, how does this event, you know, given how high profile it is and the media coverage and everything, how does this impact the CIA? You know, and either in terms of that public perception or in terms of its own internal processes? Well, you have to remember that, first of all, it's, it's planned for another president. So it's, it's not planned for Kennedy, it's planned for Eisenhower, who in all likelihood um, would have overruled it. He wouldn't have put troops on the ground just the same as he, he decided against Vietnam. Um, and Kennedy felt pressurized by the likes of uh, Alan Dulles and the various other um, officials at the CIA. Uh, the CIA really doesn't offer sound intelligence. It doesn't. It, it it believes it's offering one solution to the situation when Kennedy thinks they're offering something else. So what Kennedy expects them to to, to give um, or or to offer is a, a guerrilla warfare situation, whereas the CIA are expecting. Um, a full uh, military support for the guerrillas. And as a result, uh, Alan Dulles resigns. He's replaced by John McCone, who's seen as a more, um, he's seen as more, somebody who fits more in with with Kennedy's uh, um, sort of uh, way of thinking, although they're not particularly great friends. 
but criticism of the CIA and FBI is still limited because it's, it, it is seen as anti-American. It, the institutions have become synonymous with the fight of communism. Um, and so therefore criticism of these institutions is, is seen as being anti-communist. But it doesn't deter uh, Kennedy long-term from working with the CIA, especially with taking like, Castro through op- Operation Mongoose. But it does, to a certain extent, put them on the back uh, back burner with the likes of Johnson up till 66 and Nixon who both disliked as, as uh, Malcolm said the Ivy League uh, ingredient of, of the agency um, you know Nixon's famous for saying you know he distrusts East Coast liberals so this is what the, the agency has been filled with while bringing in Henry Kissinger of course <laughs> <laughs> can't knock Henry can't knock Henry <laughs> I, mean, I mean yeah I mean there's also I mean as David pointed out there's a kind of the you know the CIA were expecting that as part of the landings at Bay of Pigs they would they would receive you know full full air support from this kind of like ramshackle informal air force that had been assembled and that was that didn't work out. I mean essentially the Kennedy administration wasn't willing to start World War Three over a failed invasion of Cuba and the CIA also I mean primarily they got it got it wrong in predicting that there would be an anti Castro uprising. You know, it was a it was a failure to kind of get the sense that Castro and the revolution were quite popular, and the dislike of the former Batista regime that the many people in Cuba f- felt. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, the CIA. I mean, Daffod's already you know, covered all of this. Uh, I mean, there's all they also create other problems in this period. There are U two, uh, you know, spy flights. You know, you have the Gary Powers kind of incident when the U two is shot down, and that you know sabotages, you know, a conference between Khrushchev and Eisenhower, uh, you know, it creates all sorts of diplomatic problems because the CIA is essentially running these uh, spy flights into the Soviet Union that they're not actually meant to be doing. So there's all sorts of stuff going on at this time. Uh, okay. And also the involvement in Vietnam, which we'll come to. Yeah, there's one thing I wanted to pick up on there on on something that Daffod said Um on, on the basis that the, the CIA is almost protected by the fact that it's seen by attacking it as as, as anti-American and therefore and almost pro-communist. I, I was just wondering, and either, I don't know if either of you would know this, does the CIA have any sort of significant role in any way to do with the, the sort of second Red Scare and, and McCarthyism in the 1950s? Well, I mean, that's primarily the FBI. I mean, Hoover's feeding information to McCarthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, but is, but is the CIA at all involved? Daffith, you know more about this than I do. Well, no, I don't, I don't think they are. It's, it is mainly Hoover that's feeding information through HUAC to the likes of McCarthy and so on. He's, he's very much of the opinion that, that McCarthy is doing you know, a great job. He's more than happy with what's going on. It's only when McCarthy starts losing it and gets before the arm, uh, starts taking on the army, that, uh, that Hoover backs off. He realises you know, McCarthy's gone too far. And, uh, it, but no, the agency... It, cleverly stays out of that and um, that they, they managed to get through all this with, with, you know relatively unscathed to a certain extent and oh, I, mean, right. I mean we need to remember looking back at the 1950s you know the early 1950s late 1940s and the height of the the second bed scare the cia is a very young institution you know it's still it's still coming to fruition it's still finding its feet and you know finding the ground it needs to work on so you know i think that you know that plays a part in it as well Oh right, that was that was really interesting. Um, so 
we we'd gotten up to the sixties um, there, and before we reach nineteen seventy five, the Church Committee in the Year of Intelligence, there is of course, as you both hinted at already, the the small matter of the Vietnam War, and of course the Watergate affair and the resignation of uh, Richard Nixon from office as a consequence. Uh, Daffith, how do these events sort of affect the CIA generally? Well, morale is at an all-time low I mean, just before the, the year of intelligence. So we get Nixon resigns in 74, and, and they've been um, involved in a series of, of huge disappointments in Vietnam, although something like um, Operation Phoenix, which William Colby is running, which is basically an assassination of, of uh, NVA and um, uh, Viet Cong within South Vietnam, um, which kills thousands of, 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 of uh, communist um, sympathisers and agents. Uh, there's questions asked over the agency's involvement in Watergate, although there's very little evidence towards that. Senator Howard Baker, who sits on both the Watergate Committee and the Church Committee, is the only one to do so. Um, in his minority report, as part of the committee's final report, suggests they should have known in advance the break-ins, that, you know, that the CIA should have known about this. Although how they should have known in, to a certain degree, about domestic intelligence, which is what they should be involved in, is is entirely against, you know, against the whole sort of um, remit of the agency but the equipment used by the burglars was cia sources you know by howard hunt who's a former cia man there's various former agents in there but it's still very much trusted by the executive so ford comes into his office in 74 in august 74 and he very much trusts the agency he's uh he's very much for it he picks up um, pretty much where kennedy left off and he takes them and, and he, he very much works hand in hand with them and I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that the E. Howard Hunt gets brought up there because he and like G. Gordon Liddy are former CIA men involved in the Watergate break and involved in the cover up and all this kind of thing. And Hunt himself is an interesting figure. He was one of the people that was heavily involved. We talked earlier about the 53-54 overthrow of the Arbenz regime in Guatemala. Hunt was directly involved in that. And also, in the, as a side note, Hunt in the 1960s is commissioned by the CIA to write a series of spy novels to try and challenge the popularity of James Bond. Because the CIA think that James Bond and the image he gives of British intelligence makes them look bad. So they commission Hunt, who's actually already written thrillers before. He made actually quite a success with one called Bimini Run. And they commission him to write these books to try and challenge the popularity of, uh, of James Bond, which is kind of fascinating in and of itself. Yeah, and, and the other small thing I wanted to to raise was was it not? And you know the sort of recent confirmation about the fifth different confirmation though that that Richard Nixon was involved in the Anna Chenault affair um, to try and undermine the peace process during the the nineteen sixty eight election while it was going on with, with Vietnam. Um, I'm sure there was a, there was a note in that that where Nixon had Spider Agnew, his vice president, threaten the CIA director Richard Helms not to like disclose what he knew. Um, otherwise, he wouldn't be in the job long. Um, so it's interesting the sort of the the, the politicisation there. Uh, just to go back back to the the Bond reference, uh, one of the reasons why Kennedy was so enthusiastic about the CIA was because he, he absolutely adored Bond. Bond was his. He read so much of Fleming's novels. He was um, a massive enthusiast. He saw 
um, counterinsurgency sort of groups and agents working along the same lines as Bond. Completely unrealistic, of course. You know, that's how we thought the CIA worked. Um, but yeah, that's. Uh, it's it's really quite a strange sort of affair um, how Kennedy gets involved in the CIA or supports CIA through his, his sort of huge love affair with Bond. And I suppose we should kind of cover at least in brief, just in case there's anyone out there who isn't you know familiar with with what happens over Watergate, because uh, you know it's not something we've covered in any great detail. You know, I mean, it's the you know a series of cover ups of. Uh, wiretapping of dirty tricks during uh, electoral campaigns, of attempting to blacken the name of opponents of the the Nixon administration. It's all to do with the the Pentagon Papers that Daniel Ellsberg leaks that show American government duplicity over the the Vietnam War prior to Nixon and all these kind of things. And it builds up and builds up and Nixon covers up and covers up and has a slush fund and pays people off and has the plumber's unit to fix leaks and all these kind of things. And it's one of the most incredibly complicated political scandals you're ever likely to come across. We still don't know the full ramifications of Watergate. No, it's, and it's got a huge influence as well on on the birth of the investigations because it's it's there's this whole distrust of the executive and of in general of the the American public distrusts the federal government. It's built up through the involvement of the United States in Vietnam, and then on the twenty second of December nineteen seventy four, the New York Times publishes a front page article um, by Seymour Hirsch who basically accuses the CIA of spying on Americans. And so it ties into the scene of Watergate, you know, about um, obstructing democracy, about taking democracy away. And the CIA can't act uh, in a domestic manner against the uh, American public because of the National Security Act of 1947. Um, it, it sparks a huge uproar. New York Times publishes a front page story about it almost every day throughout January 75. And as a result, there's, there's three investigations that come along. So you have the, um, the, the lovely term, the United States President's Commission on CIA Activities within the United States, which thank Christ for us, you know, is shortened to the Rockefeller Commission. <laughs> and that lasts from January to June 75. And then you have the House Select Committee on Intelligence, which is also known as the Ned Seal Pike Committee, and they run from February to July 75, July 75 to Jan 76. And then my focus of my, of, of my research is on um, the very um, shortly termed the United States Senate Select Committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities, <laughs> which is named the Church Committee. Um, and is named throughout my thesis as a church committee because it's a lot shorter to time. And it's named after Senator Frank Church, the, who lost his seat um, as a senator of uh, Idaho in 1980, and he is still the last Democratic senator of Idaho. Um, and that lasts from January 75 to April 76, which is the 16-month year of intelligence. So now we know a bit about uh, about Watergate and about the wonderfully named uh, committees of, of the year, in, year of intelligence. Um, I was just wondering, how are they all interrelated? Like, how how are these uh, investigations associated with the Watergate scandal, Daffith? Well, 
there's there, there are constitutional crises, but, but they're of a different nature. For example, Watergate is about uh, the Congress's um, restriction of ex- executive overreach, whereas the Year of Intelligence is about the failure of, of the Congress to conduct uh, essential oversight of the intelligence committees. And they're sort of tied together because at the same time we have, um, especially in January 75, we have the Watergate burglars actually being sentenced front page news at the very start of the year of intelligence. And it ties in with all of this sort of uh, suspicion of, of the executive and of federal government. And, and neither side of, of this so-called struggle between the two um, branches of, of, the, uh, of the intelligence, uh, year of intelligence, are particularly well thought of by the American public. And it's kind of you know ironic that the you know I mean the, the CIA for a couple of decades has been effectively given carte blanche to to fight the Cold War on America's behalf, and then in the year of intelligence, all of that comes back to back to haunt the agency and haunt the American people. And I don't think there's any kind of coincidence that this all happens. I mean, of course, Watergate is a huge. Uh, issue here and a huge influence on it. And I don't think it's any coincidence this all happens around about the time of detente and there's many people within the United States and further afield who genuinely believe that we're entering a a post-Cold War period and uh, the Soviet Union still exists, but the Cold War is now over. Jimmy Carter, who's elected the same year as the Year of Intelligence finishes, although much later on, is referred to in some quarters as America's first post-Cold War president. Yeah, it's 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 a massive um, it's a massive influence on the way the 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 agency is perceived is this you know this period of detente. Even though, um, to a certain degree, Ford and and Kissinger are being criticised hugely for their policy of detente towards the the Soviets, um, it still has a massive influence on on the way that the whole agency and and what they've conducted is uh, during the the previous. Uh, 28 years is, is you know how it's conce- uh, perceived by the american public okay and so how does uh, how does the cia actually respond to the investigations um internally well we've got william colby who's the director of the cia he um he to the horror of some of the agents within the agency, he's quite open and quite accepting of, of, of what's gone on. He, uh, he, he submits perhaps too much information uh, during the Rockefeller interviews, Rockefeller Commission interviews. Um, he's told to actually calm down. He's taken aside and told to calm down at some point. And then once the uh, Congress gets involved from the end of January onwards, there's this whole um, process of slowing down the information that is made available to the uh, to the inquiries through the executive um, as part of a tactic of of actually um, not so much covering up but making them less ef- effective. The, the executive is well aware that the lifetimes of these uh, of these uh, inquiries is limited. And so they try it by a drip feed method of, of releasing this uh, classified information towards uh, the inquiries and their investigators. And then they, once there's criticism of that, they then flood them with information 
so that you know it goes from a drip to an absolute flood um and so that it goes from having months of waiting for documents and, and this various writing between the executive and the church committee and the pike committee requesting documents to all of a sudden having thousands upon thousands of documents and trying to find needles in the haystacks which which they effectively do of course i mean one thing to to bear in mind is that within kind of these investigations in the year of intelligence it's not just about the cia i mean it is the kind of the the most famous of the intelligence agencies but the rest of the intelligence community is is dragged kicking and screaming into this as well yeah it's it's important though to note the the remits of each of the inquiries the Rockefeller Commission, for example, is um, purposely aimed at in, uh, investigating only the CIA domestic activities uh, as part of the Hirsch allegations. Uh, the Pike Committee looks at mostly CIA, but then its, its inquiry is looking at more of the cost effectiveness of the CIA. Church Committee, on the other hand, looks at everything. They look at the CIA, they look at the FBI, which brings to light um, the COINTEL probe. Uh, programs that um, illegally wiretapped people such as Martin Luther King, groups such as the Black Panther Party and so on. And it's during this period that we find out that the NSA existed. Uh, For example, uh, up until this point, um, even though they'd been around for 20-odd years, um, the investigators during the inquiries believed that NSA jokingly stood for no such agency. Um, and it's the various um, uh, collusion with uh, organisations such as US Postal Service, where the FBI um, looked at uh, uh, mail uh, covers. The CIA had a mail cover system. There's the uh, telegrams that they uh, they uh, intercepted as well uh, overseas and abroad. We have uh, telephone uh, companies involved. So it's it is the folk the big stories is the cia and the fbi but it does include the whole intelligence agencies and yeah i mean some of the kind of the stuff that gets revealed to the american public is quite startling i think that i think the one that is that has given rise to more wild conspiracy theorizing than anything else is the mk ultra mind control program all to do with kind of like lsd and experimentation and all that kind of thing and that really kind of when that comes out all this information is released and it, you know, it grabs the attention is still cited by, by loads of people is, you know, some people say that the Kennedy assassination was due to, due to MK ultra that Sirhan Sirhan and the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 was part of MK ultra and all these kind of things. But also, I mean, it reveals that's kind of, you know, wild speculation and way beyond the fringes of reality, but there's also a dark side to it that reveals that people did, kill themselves because of the CIA's LSD experiments and all that kind of thing, conducted out of Canada and various others, all sorts of like cross-border involvement here and everything. So some fairly dark revelations come out of it all. Oh. Yeah, I, I never knew this was where MKUltra came out. And um, I, pardon my rudeness, Daffith, but what are the family jewels? <laughs> um, the family jewels. It's a report compiled by Colby um, during 1973. James Schlesinger, who during the year of intelligence is the Secretary for Defence, uh, was at the time the um, the head of the CIA, and Colby was his deputy. And he gets Colby to come up with this report of the various misdemeanours um, that the uh, the agency has done through the years. 
and Colby comes up with this massive document. There's about 70-odd different operations and so on. And it's this that Colby goes to Ford after Hershey's article is printed. And um, when Ford says to uh, Colby, you know, are the, are the allegations true? Uh, Colby rather frighteningly forward says actually that's only the tip of the iceberg and produces this, this document um, that that is extensive, shall we say, um, in, in its misdemeanors throughout the not just the 60s but also the 50s and the 40s, what it's been up to since day one. Okay, and can I just, you've mentioned the name uh, Seymour Hersh a couple of times for, for his sort of his, his, uh, his significant New York Times article. I was just wondering what what Hersh's sort of reputation is at this time because I mean Hersh is sort of famously a sort of you know going against the grain investigative journalist and sometimes can go out on a well at least in my opinion the odd time can go on a bit of a wacky edge. Um, but but where where do you where do either of you sort of how do you view Seymour Hersh? Well, Hirsch at the time, you've got to remember, he's he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the time. He's he's won his prize for his uh, his articles uh, and stories on the Malai massacre. He's um, a leading writer for the New York Times. He's not. I don't think he's yet gone down the complete conspiracy theory road, but he does at some point, uh, especially with his later books on uh, Kennedy. But at the time, he's still seen as a very um, well thought of, although for some too liberal um, writer. I'm not sure how you can be a too liberal writer, but he's perceived as that. Um, But he writes continuously throughout the the period, and it's, of course, in some ways, he's very much justifying his own original um, scoop, but he does carry on throughout the whole period writing about about the uh, the year of intelligence. And, of course, I mean, the... I mean, the media at this point are basking in the glow of having brought down a president. Seem, you know, seeming, seemingly, you know, you know, the famous thing about Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post doing all the stuff on Watergate. And I, think, I mean, of course, I mean, that's the all the president's men kind of myth. It wasn't just Woodward and Bernstein. There were so many other journalists working on this affair and everything. And how it all... Yeah, Woodward, Bernstein and Nixon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but I mean, there's also the fact that they're kind of the, the famous kind of source of theirs, Deep Throat, turns out to be the deputy director of the FBI, Mark Felt. So... I mean, there's, there's, everything starts to you know connect up and all that kind of thing, but which leads me to actually you know wanting to ask you know Daffith about it. What role does the media play once the year of intelligence gets rolling, and all these revelations are coming out of the Church Committee and all that kind of thing? What's the continued role of the the American and perhaps the global news media in all of this? Well, initially, it's it's huge. Um, it's the, the American. Um, media, especially the printed press in the, in the shape of the New York Times and the Washington Post, um, covered the story with in, it, a huge amount of intense um, uh, observations and accuracy. Uh, the Times, of course, has a vested interest because it comes up with a scoop, so it has more uh, articles and everything else. But as, I mean, as you said already before, Malcolm, this is the height of investigative journalism um, following Watergate. But unfortunately... Um, Unlike Watergate, which was in the, everybody's uh, living rooms each night when they sat down for you know to watch the news, there was always televised Watergate. It doesn't have the everyday public hearings like this um, because Church comes to an understanding that he famously says at the start of the, the inquiry that 
that his inquiry is neither going to be um, neither a, a, a whitewash nor a witch hunt. And he tries to conduct this in a, a serious manner uh, rather than being sensationalist. Um, but the lack of information that comes out, I mean, churches, the church committee's first public hearing is until September, some eight months after it starts. So the lack of information that comes out leads to sensational headlines um, when things such as uh, assassination involvement is included. And there's accusations then that these sensational headlines, which are generated by the press, are used by church to springboard his um, his attempt to um, to run for the presidency in seventy six, um, which you know, is is actually false. Um, but the support for the Pike Committee was initially very, you know, it was huge because Pike is seen as um, Otis Pike, that is represented Otis Pike of, of New York, is seen as a, a very uh, clever um, investigator. But it wanes because the Pike Committee is accused of McCarthyism. Um, over something called the Boyet Memo. And the Boyet Memo was a memo um, written by a very junior um, uh, state official um, criticising um, uh, the government policy. And the Pike Committee wants to speak to Boyet, and Kissinger refuses to allow this person to come in um, and give testimony. And as a result, the, the, the executive turn up at the Pike Committee and um, basically tell the Pike Committee that they're refusing to play ball anymore. Uh, and, then, and then we have really probably the biggest, um, the biggest use of the media by the executive is with the murder of Richard Welsh, who's the CIA chief in, in December 1974 in Athens. And it's used by Ford and Kissinger to, to maximum effect to discredit the congressional agencies, uh, the congressional inquiry, sorry. Um, his body's brought home with you know, massive ceremony. Um, he's, uh, Ford, and, uh, Ford and Church are there at his funeral. You know, it's this huge thing, and it's all uh, with an intent to, to show that the agencies. Uh, findings are a risk to the uh, actual agency's um, uh, employees overseas. Just a quick question: How does how is uh, Richard Welsh murdered? He's um, he's actually murdered by uh, not not by uh, uh, anybody after him because he's a CIA guy. He's a rather unpleasant man, apparently, or he's perceived as being. Uh, he has a few local enemies within the within Athens. He's uh, well known for being the CIA guy. It's not a secret. Um, but the church and, um, and the uh, uh, Pike committees, because they have released um, classified information as seen as contributing towards his death, which is completely false. And also, I mean, as well as the, the church and Pike committees getting blamed for it, there's kind of former CIA agents who are now kind of apostates and anti-secrecy advocates get blamed for it as well. Like Philip Agee, who's now living in, in Britain, he published a book that he couldn't get published in the US called Inside the Company, a CIA diary. And in some ways, AG and other kind of whistleblowers, if you want to use that term, disaffected former agents also get kind of dragged in and blamed for you know identifying uh, you know, alleged CIA officers and agents and thereby was, you know, resulting in the, the death of 
of Welsh. So that it's not just the 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 church committee and the investigations that are taking place. There is kind of like wider, you know, whistleblowing going on in other parts of the world that seems to lead to the death of, of Welsh, who's fated as this American hero. As far as I'm aware, he gets a huge state funeral and everything when he comes back. And, the, and does, does Ford not turn up to his funeral in Arlington Cemetery? Yes, he does. And, and you know, it's, it's a massive sort of, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the transport plane that is actually circles around the airport before it lands. So, that, you know, so that his, his, uh, his coffin is seen on the news live as it comes off the plane. It's all stage managed, uh, but just to go to back about um, about other agents. This it, this op- the whole year of intelligence opens the floodgates for information about the agencies to come spinning out, um, and it's without the year of intelligence there wouldn't be any intelligence studies um, in terms of academia. Prior to this, it's all conjecture, it's all theory about the role of of agencies within a democratic process. Um, after this, we then suddenly have a huge amount of documents and, and evidence that um, intelligence historians can suddenly start using to write histories like Locke Johnson and Roderick Jeffrey Jones. So just to return to, to Frank Church, because he's, I mean, he's, he's quite an interesting character. I mean, you know, you wouldn't be writing a PhD thesis on, on him and his committee if it, there wasn't some, some interest there. There's a persistent accusation, which you've touched on before, that Church is just using this as a springboard for his presidential ambitions. I mean, is this actually the case or is this a misunderstanding and a, kind of, a misrepresentation about his motivations and all of this? Frank Church, I've, I've, I found him to be the perfect combination of ambition and morality within an American politician, if that's at all possible. Um, he's a hugely um, uh, ambitious guy. He wants this... Um, this chairmanship of this committee. He's also chairman of um, the aging committee. He's also, he, de- he goes on to become chairman of the foreign relations committee. Uh, but this is his big um, publicity um, effort. Does he use it as a springboard? No, I don't think he does. He does have presidential ambitions. He, that's been spoken of before this committee. Um, but the year of intelligence really is a struggle for public approval um, between the executive and church uh, executive and the church committee for um, the recommendation of their reforms of the agency. So church needs the publicity for two reasons. He needs it for public education and public approval. He wants to educate the public in uh, what the CIA have been up to, about the dangers of unchecked authority within the executive branch, within a democratic system. Um, He also wants public approval for the uh, committee's reforms or suggested reforms of the intelligence agency rather than the executive reforms, because the executive forms are really just maintaining the status quo. Um, With regards to his presidential aspirations, Advisors such as um, his executive assistant, when I spoke to him, Mike Wetherill, um, he, they actually wanted him to enter the presidential race earlier. Church doesn't enter until late February once the work of the committee is done. And Wetherill wanted him to go in for the Massachusetts primary, which was on March 2nd, but he couldn't do that because it was too late. Um, and he enters actually enters the race in late February. Church says no. Church is adamant 
that he doesn't want any involvement in the presidential race until after this. And you look through the archives um, over in Boyce State University in the Frank Church Papers Collection, and there's um, there's a, a survey done in September of 75 during the middle of this, a public opinion survey, and it recommends that Frank Church does this, that, and the other. And Frank Church actually says no, he uh, refused to make any work on this. That's not to say none of his advisors did, but Church actually was focused entirely on on the investigation. And so he enters the the, the race in late February. He wins Nebraska primary, Idaho primary, Oregon primary, and Montana primary. Um, he just falls short in Rhode Island, um, but his chance at, at Democrat nomination uh, goes when Jerry Brown stands in California, wins California. If Church had won California, it may well be that he would have beaten Carter to it. Um, would he have been a good president? Some of his advisors think possibly not. I spoke to another advisor of his who said that he felt that, you know, the church was maybe a bit too intellectual to be a president. He's very quiet uh, guy in a, in a big room. He's not a big social guy. It was his wife, Bethine, that was the woman that, that went around the room and shook hands. Um, but that's not to say he didn't have the ambition to be president. He would have accepted the vice presidency for the way and was interviewed for it or went to meet um, Carter for it, but unfortunately never got it. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about Church is as well that it was revealed later that the NSA had spied on him. Um, yes, when he was overseas, he was, his, uh, his uh, uh, telegrams and his letters were intercepted by them as, as, as he, as he uh, spoke to home, which is, uh, you know, it's uh, rather... It must be disconcerting to find out, you know, the people that you're looking after are actually been doing what you've been fearing. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, aside from Church's political career, um, what are the the actual political outcomes of this investigation or the investigations? Well, we have what's called the Halloween massacre towards the end of the uh, the year of intelligence. So, which is strangely, you know strangely enough, appears on uh, on Halloween on October the 31st and 75. And that's Colby's removed from his role as, as director of CIA, although he carries on until January when his replacement, um, a certain George H.W. Bush, comes in and takes over after he's been, uh, he's been ambassador in China. Um, James Schlesinger gets pushed out of his role as Secretary of uh, Defence, uh, that's taken over by Donald Rumsfeld. And Kissinger gets moved on from his role as National Security Advisor, he's still maintained as, as Secretary of State. Um, Bush only lasts years as DCI. He's replaced um, by Stansfield Turner, who goes on there for a long time, uh, to be there for a long time. And, and in fact, strangely enough, George H.W. Bush is seen as this huge sort of saviour of, of the CIA because it's after this year of intelligence, there's this period of calmness and, and, and steadying of the ship. Uh, we also have, uh, quite importantly, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, a permanent uh, committee is voted in, uh, which still exists with us today. And then we have uh, FISA in 1978 comes as a, a direct uh, result of the intelligence um, agency uh, inquiries, uh, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which um, it's, it's a way of process to gain authorization for wiretapping, which is eventually overruled by the 2001 Patriot Act. So, and from talking to you before, it seems that remarkably for all the fallout 
and all the stuff that can media coverage and all the stuff that gets revealed out of the, the church committee, it's not been as subject to as much like scholarly historical analysis as you would expect. I mean, is this, is this right? Well, yes and no. So, uh, so prior to church committees or, pr- or prior to the year of intelligence, as I said, we've got people like Harry, Harry Ransom who, who, or Harry Ransom, who look at the, um, the uh, the intelligence community, but it's merely, merely through theory. And then we have Locke Johnson, who's a who's a one of uh, Church's assistants. He goes off and writes a very important book called *A Season Inquiry* in the mid '80s. That's followed by Kathy Olmsted, who in the early '90s writes her thesis on the role of newspapers within this. But it's mostly being used as um, a sort of as a stopgap in institutional history. Uh, for many people, the church committee uh, reveals so much about the FBI. It's used to underline the the, uh, the Hoover period of the FBI because the, the FBI and the CIA use it as a sort of a point where they can, um, you know, they sort of clean in the slate to a certain extent. Um, and there's been a bit more in the last year. For example, uh, there was a huge... Um, uh, collection of oral histories by the Senate um, Historical Office um, of various employees and members of the church committee that went on. Um, And there should be more in 2026 when the committee documents are declassified because under um, Senate rules, it's an inquiry that it's an inquiry committee that involves national security. And so therefore the documents of the committee and Frank Church's documents associated with the committee are uh, classified for fifty years. Okay, so to kind of uh, to, to to draw this uh, this podcast towards an end and do what we always like to do is to kind of reflect on on the legacy um, of, of of the events we've discussed. And so, quite simply, you know, what was the legacy of the Year of Intelligence and the Church Committee's findings? You know, I. I've read that some people, I mean, you, you, you've, you've already sort of discussed that it happened at the time, but I've read that some people continue to consider its actions as treasonous, um, especially after, after 9-11. Um, and it's, has, it, has it remained a source of controversy ever since? Well, I mean, you can look at, if you go to uh, Church's um, papers in, in a Boise State University, there's, there's a lot of correspondence between American citizens and church about how church should conduct his role. Uh, Bing Crosby uh, famously writes to him at the end of 75, and there's this, you know, this sort of three or four letters between him and, and church talking. He questions the pat, uh, patriotism of church in, in investigating such, a, uh, such an agency. Um, but it's not really until after 9-11 where we have almost, I think it was the day after that Kissinger and Baker both blame the investigations of the 1970s for weakening the CIA and FBI. Um, but I think that's unfair because Church's recommendations weren't about condemning the agency. There's 96 recommendations in the, in the final report that amounts to six books and seven volumes of hearings. And they're more about making the agency efficient and constitutionally acceptable. At no point do any of the agencies, and this is Church involved, who's you know as much critic as anybody else, and Pike. At no point do they um, even recommend the uh, the expulsion of the CIA from the intelligence community or or, or damning it. Um, and these accusations are mostly partisan, but and it, 
you know, there's recently, especially in 2014, there's been a lot of calls for a 21st century church committee after the Snowden's revelations of, uh, of history almost repeating itself with the, uh, the NSA uh, PRISM program. And I mean, I've kind of looked a little bit into the, the effect in the, the UK, which is kind of interesting, or the lack of effect in the UK. And what happens with the with church and the other investigations is that there are journalists working for the BBC who see the church committee in action, who actually go to go to the United States and see the church committee in action and are influenced in their thinking about the situation in Britain. Because the British government doesn't admit until much later on that the British intelligence agencies, MI5 and MI6 and GCHQ, even exist. It denies the very existence of them. So this provokes uh, journalists to start investigating and it provokes politicians to call for the kind of openness, perceived openness, that's coming out of what's happening in the United States. Uh, So in the United States, you have things like the Government and the Sunshine Act and the Intelligence Oversight Act and stuff like that. And there's a resistance from Margaret Thatcher's government that comes in in mid-1979 to increased openness regarding the British intelligence services, despite the demands that are coming from other politicians and from journalists. And you also see things like the the Scottish journalist Duncan Campbell in 1976 is the, the first journalist to really expose the existence of the NSA's connections with British GCHQ. And he kind of like it names GCHQ in 1976, which is kind of influenced by what's going on in the United States and the activities of Philip Agee and various other disaffected intelligence uh, officers. So there are ramifications on the British side of the Atlantic, but resistance to something like that happening in the UK. And it's not too much later that there's any openness about British intelligence. Okay, and I've got a final. Oh, sorry, Daphne, on you. Sorry, I just wanted to, just wanted to jump in there. Um, there's also quite importantly, there's a there's a cultural thing as well. I mean, if, there's two films that flank either side or bookend either side of the of the uh, year of intelligence. The the first one is um, the conversation, which uh, stars Gene Hackman, which is about somebody who collects surveillance on various other people, and at the other end we have. Um, Three Days at the Condor, which is Robert Redford, which is about um, the CIA operating um, within the daylight uh, within the United States. And they're two great films, but they very much tie into this culture of of this sort of secret government that goes on without people knowing. And from these investigations and their revelations of warrantless wiretapping and surveillance and so on... um, there emerges this conspiracy theory culture that really does take off. I mean, we can look at sort of 20 years later, things like the X-Files. This is the birth of all all the conspiracy theories. This is where it starts, Um, you know, and it's, it's not so much that, that people are starting to think the extremes of the CIA, but it's, they actually can actually see what the CIA and other agencies have been up to for real and has been proven to do it. And this is the birth of this sort of um, this conspiracy theory culture that you know we have even today. We, we're quite happy to um, accept that quite possibly any government agency is up to anything. Okay, and I think this podcast has been really timely given what's going on the, 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 with the CIA being in the news just now. Uh, and in that vein, I have one final short question. 
Has a president or a president-elect ever gone after the CIA um, vis-a-vis Donald Trump is doing just now? Um, or is it or is generally that our president's always been much more charitable towards the organisation? Well, I, I, the nearest that I can think of is quite possibly... Uh, well, both Carter and Reagan didn't really like the CIA. Carter certainly didn't. He did Well, Carter didn't really like anybody within... Washington, to be quite honest, but he really didn't trust the CIA. But he had to use them. Ford famously makes um, makes a, a, a point of uh, saying to Cronkite in an uh, in an interview in it, right in the middle of this uh, year of intelligence that uh, a president operating foreign policy without an effective intelligence agency is like operating with one arm tied behind his back. And I think that despite any president having any distrust of it, they realise the worthiness of good intelligence to their foreign policy. Yeah, and I would, Carter was going to be the example I, I was going to use. He fires George H.W. Bush as director and brings in Stansfield Turner uh, when when he's inaugurated. So I think you know that. Be but he's not. Carter didn't preemptively declare war on the CIA in the manner that Donald Trump seems to have done. He's almost gone to war with his own intelligence community before he even gets into the White House. Okay, fascinating. Um, so on that note, um, I, I think that that will do us. Um, first of all, thank you very much, Daffith. I, I learned a lot there. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And Malcolm, thank you as always to you. Thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I've learned a lot as well. Fantastic. And thank you to all of our listeners. And as always, we'll be back next month with another podcast. Until then, see you later. Bye. about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because 
let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal.